Three years and two months ago, a very slim majority of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. The people of Britain have spoken, voting for a British exit dubbed Brexit. Wow, what a day. We're following the enormous shockwaves by British voters for their country to exit. Turning its back on Europe. To leave the 28-member European Union. Brexit. 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 And for all that time, the country's been in a kind of rolling crisis, trying to figure out how to do it. Half of the UK has seen Brexit as a democratic dream. The other half see it as a nationalist nightmare. But ready or not, in just two months, the country and the rest of the world could be waking up to Brexit as a reality. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Usually on this show, I call up Al Jazeera's correspondents and talk to them about the news they're covering. But to really dig into Brexit, we wanted to do something different. This week, we're handing the show over to a couple of people who have been living and breathing Brexit since well before the vote. Mariam Namazi is one of our London-based presenters. And I'm in the studio with our correspondent, Lawrence Lee, who has been fortunate enough to uh, <laughs> what have co- I done? cover this maelstrom at the heart of our politics. Lawrence Lee is our intrepid Brexit correspondent. You know, it, it was portrayed as the simplest thing in the world, but Brexit has become a monster. You know, it, it's become this wild animal that eats politicians for breakfast and spits their bones out. Miriam and Lawrence have seen it all. The slumping economy that fueled the vote, the politicians who've bickered themselves out of a solution, and the anger and divisiveness that's erupted, or that may have been there the whole time. The stakes are high, and the thicket is deep. So Miriam pulled Lawrence into a studio in London to talk us through how we got here. It's still not 100% clear what this divorce between the UK and Europe will actually mean. Still, even now, three years after the vote, to leave. There are predictions of logistical disaster. The movement of goods between Europe and the UK could potentially grind to a halt. Just a few weeks ago, a report was leaked detailing how bad Brexit could get government documents are actually talking about supermarkets running out of food. People talk about flights not being able to land in in the European Union. Violence on the island of Ireland. The UK could be left without any trade deals with virtually anybody at all. And financial, financial ruin. I've spoken to some of these people who have legitimate worries about what's going to happen if Britain crashes out of the EU. People like sheep farmers, for example... Richard Yates, right now, he sells a third of his sheep to the EU. I've been farming 30 years in the heart of the West Midlands with free and frictionless trade. And if we crash out of Europe, that market is likely to disappear. And it's not just about the economy. Some people are afraid this separation could get really dangerous. I have type 1 diabetes, which means I have to take injections of insulin and keep watch on my blood sugar during the day and during the night. This is Oscar Aikenbar. He's 12. The insulin comes from Europe and so does a lot of the other things like my blood test. They come from France and Germany and all all around there. I hope Brexit doesn't happen. I try to remain positive and think that everything will be all right, but it is 
something bad might happen. have become so worried about availability of insulin. That's Kim Aikenbar, Oscar's mum. I've put arrangements in place that should a crisis arise, we can get on a plane or get on a train and go to Europe um, and get his prescription renewed out there on a private basis. But I am terrified for other people, people who can't travel. And now we're staring down this no-deal Brexit as a nation. And Lawrence, you and I have both been here through all of this, but even I keep thinking, how did we get here? How did this vote happen? And how did we end up where we are now? A couple of years ago, you went to a little town in the north of England, a town of about a quarter of a million, Stoke-on-Trent. I remember the report well. You spoke to people there about what was happening in the country that made them vote for Brexit in the first place. After the referendum, one of the places which was seen as totemic in terms of the Brexit vote was Stoke-on-Trent. I wanted to go and find a figure there who, who seemed to me to represent why it voted to leave, and that's how I met Ali Simcock. Stoke's city centre, town centre, was thriving. It had loads of shops in, a really thriving market. Everybody knew who you were. It was just a proper community. Her dad was a miner, and she painted this picture of when she was growing up, and they had this enormous sense of civic pride and, and community, you know? In places like Stoke and these northern towns, industries like coal mining were the glue, really, that bound the community together. All the men worked down the pit, but as time went on, the pits closed down in the, in the 1980s, and gradually everything closed down. Her, her dad died, her mum lost her job in the potteries, and when it all went, they felt this enormous sense of personal loss. And this had nothing to do with the EU. Industry was just leaving Britain and leaving people like Ali in a new Stoke-on-Trent that she seems to think was a little bit worse. Yeah, unfortunately, all the big shops shut down and there's not a lot left in the town centre anymore, just mainly charity shops and betting shops, which is really, really quite sad. And, you know, one of the key drivers for me of the Brexit vote in in, in these post-industrial towns north of London that that dotted around England, it's very much the same in in all of them, is, is this sense of, you know... What we used to have is this yearning for when, when, when our towns were known all over the world and we produced all this amazing stuff and the, the pride. Because you grew up in Coventry and, and this was known as the birthplace of the country's motor industry. Coventry was like, like Detroit in, in the States, right? It's, you know, the first cars in the world were built, were built in Coventry. Famous London black taxis were made in, in, in Coventry. Jaguar, Rolls-Royce. Coventry, beautiful and ancient, but a city with a modern heart. In the 1980s, when I was a boy, the, the, the factories all started shutting down. And it is the same story. It, it, it never got replaced. Coventry totally lost its way. And successive governments never found a way of, of replacing any of that lost industry. It, it, it really seems to me that it, it opened the way for, for, for what happened politically. The 1980s was when Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government was in power. They saw unemployment go from one to three million. And a lot of Liberals blame those economic policies, at least partially, for the the end of industry in Britain. Yeah, it was it was the it was the shift in the 1980s from a manufacturing economy to to a service based economy. They were very, very happy for these industries to be wound down. 
And then suddenly the banks became these enormous monoliths, which were actually ways of making money in their own terms in, in, instead of actually serving the, 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 the needs of, of, of little people. And then the money started pouring out of, 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 of the rest of England into London, where, where, where all the banks were based. And so suddenly you have cities like Stoke and, and, and Coventry where, where there aren't many jobs around. It didn't end with Thatcher or the Conservatives, though, did it? There are plenty of British politicians to blame in this story. When Tony Blair came to power, he and his ministers did absolutely nothing to try to replace manufacturing industry. They were very relaxed about things like selling Land Rover off to, off, off to BMW in Germany, for example, and, and, and that led to the loss of more jobs and, and, and jobs disappearing. And at the same time, the European Union was expanding. When they had their first vote on to join the European Economic Area in 1974, my, my mum tells me that that was exactly the same angry split but the UK has always had this sort of sense of exceptionalism and being better than, than, than a lot of other European countries. And, you know, we're a proud, independent island nation and we don't need all these other people to tell us what to do or, or, or to direct us as a country. We want to be by ourselves. And you still hear forlorn echoes of remembrance for that time when the sun never set on the British Empire. You do. And through the 1990s, the European Union coalesced and that culminated in, in the great expansion of 2004 when suddenly the European Union isn't just this group of Western European countries around France and Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium. Lithuania became the 19th European Union member state to adopt the euro currency on January 1st. Tomorrow, 10 countries from Eastern and Central Europe and the Mediterranean will join the EU. Suddenly you got Hungary and the Baltic states and Poland, they're all now in the club as well, and that's when things really started to shift. Right, and it's significant that you now have more and more Polish immigrants displacing Indians who, up until this point, had been the largest diaspora in the UK. Yeah, and, and one of the most striking things, after all these European countries joined in the big movement of 2004... In those years, people were Polish plumbers. They're great because they work so hard and they're cheaper than British plumbers. And it, the Polish plumber really was a thing. But that was from the middle of the first decade of the 21st century. Go forward another 10 years. These Poles, they're taking our jobs. They're, they're coming to our hospitals and sending all them and they're earning money and sending it back to build houses in Poland. And then, of course, there comes the Great Recession. This is circa 2008. The stock market tumbles and this economic tidal wave surged across the Atlantic and takes out several more banks in the UK. The UK Parliament has warned taxpayers may never recover the estimated 82 billion euros spent by the government during the country's banking crisis. The UK's biggest banks are rescued by the British taxpayer. The action we are taking is unprecedented, but essential for all of us. It's something that matters for every family and business in Britain. The response from the British political class to the banking crisis was... If we don't do something now, there'll be riots on the streets because you can't take any money out of the cash point machine. So they, they, they just started printing money. They, they invented hundreds of millions of pounds to give to the banks, which had been, frank, frankly, criminal and corrupt in the way that they've been doing business. And then they turned around to the people and said... You've got to pay for all this through austerity. The depth of opposition to the austerity cuts was played out on the streets of the capital on Saturday as tens of thousands answered the call from Britain's trade unions to give voice to their anger. Then you have these years of austerity and, and the, the rise of food banks, a loss of school places, crisis in the hospitals because there's no money for them and this sort of thing. 
you know it's and and that's that that idea of, of of the betrayal of the little people was to become one of the most important arguments from the pro brexit side and then the populists turn up and say this is the european union's fault yeah if these people weren't here you wouldn't be suffering in the same way and of course lawrence you're talking about nigel farage who led the uk independence party at the time the name pretty much says it all farage and ukip give the british people a scapegoat for declining industry for austerity for immigration all of that stuff they blamed and still blame the European Union. Nigel Farage, an absolutely brilliant communicator, arguably the most important politician of, of the first 20 years of the 21st century, formed this political party called UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and suddenly they were nowhere for years. They were, they were David Cameron called them swivel-eyed loons. And then in the European elections in 2012, they got three million votes. So what was he doing then? that the other politicians weren't. What was his magic? The guy behind austerity was George Osborne. You know, he'd go and, he'd go and make a speech. He'll go and stand on a building site or a, or, or, or a factory somewhere with a yellow hive's jacket on and a, and a crash hat, you know, one of these things you wear on a building site, make his speech and then disappear straight back on the train to London again. And they didn't spend any time at all going out into the city or talking to people or asking about their lives and actually listening. And then... By contrast, you have Nigel Farage. He's always there sitting outside a pub with a cigarette in one hand and a pint of beer in the other, you know, talking to people about about, about their lives. People love it. People absolutely love it because they think this guy's trying to understand my life in the way the technocratic politicians just don't even try to. And then this crucial moment. Brexit actually came to a vote. It happened because Nigel Farage looked like a real threat to David Cameron, who was leader of the Conservative Party and also Prime Minister. Cameron saw this huge surge in support for Farage for the UK Independence Party, UKIP, and he thought a Brexit vote would take that problem off the table. So under enormous pressure, he said, fine, we'll have that referendum, because he was 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 totally clear in his own mind that, that, that Remain would win and it would put... The whole debate about Britain's relationship with the European Union to bed once and for all. Do we want to be in the European Union? He thought the answer would be yes, very much we do. Fine, that's it. The end of UKIP. But it was the reverse. A majority of Britain, of course, voted to leave the European Union. You spoke to many of those leavers when you went to Stoke-on-Trent for that report we mentioned earlier. They were saying what Nigel Farage was saying from their perspective. Industry was gone and it was the EU's fault. Do you blame the European Union for what went wrong here? Yeah, I think that definitely had a part to play in it. It's where industry started to move outside of Britain um, to other countries where it was cheaper, and that became the end of the industry that we have here, and all the skilled jobs that we had have gone. When in several years' time there's a government inquiry into Brexit and, and, and how it was framed, there will have to be a specific question about the, the, the referendum question. It was framed as a binary choice. Do you want to stay in or do you not want to stay in, right? At that point, there was no talk whatsoever about customs union, the, the various different... These things are just lost on people. It was presented as a binary choice, and yet only, only after that did the argument start about what Brexit actually means. OK, Lawrence, so here we are, three years later... It feels as though 
there's a lot of anger in some cases, racism, xenophobia, misogyny, really bubbling up to the surface. Because it's broken the country and, and, and people have become so angry about it, it's, it's led to people being threatened. You know, there's a Labour MP called Joe Cox who was, who was murdered in the street. There are MPs who uh, support Remain and don't support Leave who, who've been given death threats. I mean, I've been threatened on Twitter. A guy said he wanted to come and find me because I did a story that portrayed the Remain side. It's, it's weird. It, it, it really is. I've never known anything like it. It is extraordinary. Um, I find it very strange. But then it's hard to know at the same time if um, some of these forces were already there and they've just been unleashed or is it Brexit that's kind of brought about this this sort of behaviour? Well, you know, I think I think people have changed. I mean, it, it, it has totally, totally marginalised lots of people and, and, and split opinion, polarised everybody. And, and it's gone off to the extremes. Has Brexit strengthened the far right? Uh, well, yes, I think very, very much it has. They call it patriotism, you know, absolutely call it patriotism. But at the same time, they say, if you don't support Brexit, you're a traitor. Now, that's a really loaded word. You know, even now, Boris Johnson talks about members of parliament who don't like his version of Brexit as being collaborators with the European Union. Now, that's a really loaded word, too. It's not fair and it's not true to say that Brexiters are racist. But some certainly have a distinct whiff of it about them. But hang on, this gets more complicated. You spoke to immigrants who voted for Brexit. There is this entire constituency that's that's hardly talked about of black and Asian people who, who all voted leave. So let me ask you about that, because you talked about uh, the economic grievances in the country. You have your anti-immigrant Brexiter who cares about identity and community. Uh, but... To show how bizarre <laughs> and incongruous you spoke to some Nigerians. Just outside the back of our house is a little Nigerian restaurant that I go past every day. And I was chatting to him one day. And they said, we all voted leave in the referendum. And I said, did you really? Don't you think that that's like Turkey's voting for Christmas? You know, and they said, look, before the UK joined the European Union, we could come here because we're in the Commonwealth. This whole collection of British colonies that still have benefits through the United Kingdom. And it sounds like these Nigerians you spoke to felt as though their special status wasn't so special anymore. That's what he was saying. As soon as the UK joins the European Union, suddenly all these Poles and Europeans are coming here and it's not fair. Before I became a British citizen, having had the right to live in the United Kingdom, I have to go and swear allegiance to the Queen, pay a lot of money. But when people come from Europe, they come into the country, two days they are in the system, they don't need to go and change their nationality. And then because their country is part of Europe, they have trade and everything. And we, as an I in particular, I feel cheated. I feel jealous about that. Because we're in the Commonwealth, and this is also true of the, of the Asian Commonwealth countries you talk about, they will have much greater free access to the UK, and it'll go back to how it used to be. And you do think to yourself, ideologically pure Brexiters who, who, who want a white country and that sort of thing, what are they going to make of that? I'm the daughter of immigrants and my parents came to this country. And uh, I've always thought of myself as being British. So have you felt this too? 
I think it's very strange and somewhat uncomfortable. And do you think people look at you differently? I'm not sure. But I feel like maybe those things matter more than they used to. Mm. So the country has become more polarised, more divided. And we see that reflected in Parliament as well. When Theresa May was Prime Minister, she tried repeatedly to get her deal through. And she failed multiple times. She was trying to tread some sort of middle ground that doesn't seem to exist. The, the, the whole argument is we're stronger by ourselves. A poll was taken for the Times newspaper of, of attitudes among Conservative Party members who are almost entirely fairly old, pretty rich, white English people. What would it take for you to have, have this sort of Brexit that you want, the no-deal Brexit? Would you allow Scotland to leave? Yes, we would. Would you allow Northern Ireland to leave? Yes, we would. Would you suffer financial hardship? Yes, we would. That it's it, it literally has become at any cost now. It's like a load of children who think they've been promised a rocket for Christmas and end up getting a rusty bicycle instead. They just turn their nose up at this thing. And Theresa May tried. She tried to make that rusty bicycle look like a rocket to the Brexiteers, but she eventually had to give up, resign. And that's how Boris Johnson picked up the reins. Now he's promising that rocket at any cost... But I think this question is still hanging over us. Maybe the most important question. Can the UK make Brexit happen? Is it even possible? I think it was a false prospectus. The terms of the referendum were very simple. Cut immigration, do trade deals. It'll be dead simple. Easiest thing like falling off a log. That's, that, that's what they all said. Now, plainly, it, it, it isn't, is it? No, it's not. You are the long-suffering Brexit correspondent of Al Jazeera. I hardly ever see you in the London office because you're so busy covering the story and helping us all understand it a bit better. Tell me about the effect this has had on you. Well, I, I just, I just want something to, I just want it to finish. You know, everyone wants it to finish, don't they? It's, it's, it, it, it can't carry on like this. You know, endlessly circling the Brexit airport without being able to land the plane. Um, but th the thing that just bothers me about it is that people think that Brexit's the end. If it happens, Brexit's not the end. It's, it's the start. You know, and this Odyssean voyage into whatever it is that, that the UK goes on. And no one's got a clue where, where, where the ship's heading. And this is now a crisis that has gone to the heart of our democracy. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is now going to suspend Parliament just weeks before the big Brexit deadline. That means less time for members of Parliament to stop the country crashing out of the EU. They are enraged by this and it sets the stage for a massive battle between the government and Parliament. And Lawrence, we've been speaking about towns and cities in the country that have suffered from factory closures and job losses. And you're from Coventry, once known as the motor city of Britain. This whole story that you've been telling us, it's about your life as well. This is personal for you. It is a really peculiar sensation. You know, you, I mean, I spent 
30 years being being a reporter and you go around the world and you see places where the you know revolutions and people on the streets and and all, all this kind of thing you think god this country is falling apart and it, it i mean p- people do worry what what's going to happen what's the country going to be like and, and it's either way around, isn't it? If you get a no-deal Brexit and the worst-case scenario comes true and the food runs out and there's riots on the streets, then, you know, that's, that's really a thing. Equally, if Brexit doesn't happen and the worst-case scenario happens and all the levers start setting fire to stuff, it just feels like a very, very volatile moment in, in, in modern British history. And there are stakes here with this divorce. The economy is already suffering. And then the possibility of shortages, insulin and other medicines running out. We've opened Pandora's box and it's impossible to say where it might lead. And that was The Take from London with our Brexit crew, Mariam Namazi and Lawrence Lee. Thank you both. For the latest on Brexit, because you know you want to know, you can follow their live reports on aljazeera.com. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Morgan Waters, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Seth Samuel was a sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back next week.